Battleline Podcast. You're checking out our episode here with Ryan Fugit, host of Combat Story. So we might have some new listeners checking out Battleline Podcast. My name is Ian Scotto, and on here with Chris Bronto, we interview members of the military, the special operations military community, and the Second Amendment community, and uh, some people from outside of that realm, and we get into their stories, and we also talk some news, which we'll get into a little bit of that before uh, we get into our show with Ryan. Uh, first of all, to the fathers out there, I hope that you enjoyed your Father's Day as you're listening to this or watching this. I'm probably with my dad the following Monday uh, after Father's Day at the Met game, seeing the Mets versus the Marlins. And the Mets, if you're a Met fan, have been doing absolutely amazing, as have the Yankees. If you're a Yankee fan like Tonto, we may see another Subway Series, World Series. Who knows? Um, a big piece of news today, which I get into with Ryan, is uh, two U.S. volunteers have been captured in Ukraine. These guys are originally from Alabama, so keep these guys in your prayers. I'm recording this on Thursday, so there may be an update to that story. And uh, also wanted to mention here, uh, our good friend Ryan Kraft from Fort Scott Munitions. You heard about the story of uh, Lillian Rose Lillian Rosecraft, who uh, who was diagnosed with trisomy 18 and uh, and died a year ago today. So if you want to check out um, some of the work they're doing for people who have been diagnosed with that condition and the children who are affected by this, go to LillianRoseFoundation.com and you can learn more about that story and also help to find a cure for this. So LillianRoseFoundation.com. Um, with that, we'll get right into everything. But before we do, we have some great sponsors who keep us going. And uh, for all of you listening, what is your daily ritual? And I want to tell you how Ned could fit into that. So a daily ritual, a daily practice helps you stay grounded. It's an intentional act where you take a few minutes to reconnect with and take care of yourself. Daily routines are mundane and make you feel stuck in a rut. Daily rituals are meaningful and help you become the person you want to be. Transforming your life can be as simple as bringing more attention to the things you do every day. So number one, get present, slow down, and check in with your five senses. Number two, think positive, take a deep breath, and say affirmations, and also then connect with your North Star. Smile and think about what really matters. So Ned has great products. They're full-spectrum hemp, their full spectrum CBD. Uh, if you look at their different prices there of the products, the 300 milligram is really the lowest price point, but that's what I take every day. And it's had a great impact on my life and my well-being and my health. Uh, so it's something to check out. They also have their sleep blend. They have uh, their, their body butter, a lot of great products that are science backed. So they're nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. Their CBD is cold extracted from the world's purest USDA-certified organic hemp in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Full transparency, Ned shares third-party lab reports, who farms their products and their extraction process, all right there on their site. Their CBD products have over 2,000 five-star reviews. So become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned products with the code BATTLELINE. Go to helloned.com slash BATTLELINE or enter the code BATTLELINE at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash BATTLELINE and you're going to get 15% off. 
Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Another great supplement that we use and we back is Bub's Naturals. It is the best collagen protein out there, and that's because it is single-sourced, no blends. It's just raw cowhide grounded up, and the reason that it works so well is collagen is really the building blocks for your body. works for hair, skin, nails, and it's going to help your muscle recovery as well. They also have other great products. They're apple cider vinegar gummies, which are great for appetite control. They're... Um, their MCT oil powder, which you can mix actually with the collagen protein, and it blends great with hot water, cold water, coffee. And uh, I like to mix the two together, and that MCT oil gives it that coconut taste. So great product, and in the process, you're also supporting the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation because they give back with every purchase. So you could find their stuff actually at Vitamin Shop, but you're going to get the best deal through us. And that's at bubsnaturals.com when you use the promo code BATTLELINE for 20% off. We're also going to have Sean Lake back on the podcast soon to celebrate the life of Glenn Doherty, Navy SEAL, who we lost in Benghazi. So check them out. Check out their products. You're really going to love them. Bubsnaturals.com. Use the promo code BATTLELINE and you're going to get 20% off. With that, let's get right over to Ryan Fugit. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dead for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. podcast ian scotto here chris peranto is is not out by his own accord he wanted to be here for this interview we recorded a whole intro and his connection is shit right now and i guess it's because as he said being in kansas it's apparently over 100 degrees so he thinks that has a lot to do with it possibly but more importantly i am here with ryan fugit uh host of combat story uh very interesting background i have to say retired army apache pilot and Army officer from 2002 to 2009 with deployments to Afghanistan, which you then became a CIA officer from 2011 to 2019. Currently, you're the director of detention of detection and response, the team for, and uh, and then also you're doing the podcast. So that's quite a lot of stuff. Absolutely, and I, I should just say for those who are out there who are military, I'm not retired because I didn't stay 20 years. I'm a former army officer okay. but not retired just in case anybody's uh catching that one 
Got you. Okay, that's fair to say. You know, sometimes I just don't don't know what to say because of uh, you know, it's with the Marines, so they'll always be like, once oh, yeah. you always know, Marine, you don't say reformer or whatever. So you know, I, I'm still just like figuring out. All right, how do I write this down? But I just knew that you weren't active duty. Yeah, for sure. So nope, you're spot on. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we've been we've been trying to set this up for a while, and and there might be some new listeners checking this out because you just did an interview with Chris Peranto and these are going to fall within, I guess, a few days of each other, I believe. So. Yeah, absolutely. Chris and I had a great time. Actually, I think as I wrap that one up, I was thinking it was probably one of the better ones we've done um, on combat story. Like Chris is just so open about yes. what he's been through and he's got such a, a varied background that many people don't hear. And even me coming from the CIA, like I know GRS really well, but to really hear what it was like from his perspective, was awesome, and I think he just talks through the details really well. Yeah, he he does definitely, and and I think doing public speaking as he's done for all these years, he's become very open to talking about that type of stuff, and and great at what he does for sure. But uh, getting into yeah, what what you do, I'd love to hear like where it all started, your origin story. Were you a kid who always dreamed of joining the army, or how did this come about? <sighs> So my whole family is military. Uh, my old man flew Hueys in Vietnam. Um, I have two older brothers, uh, three older brothers, two of them who were in the army as well. One was a, another pilot. He flew Kiowas, whereas my dad flew Hueys. I flew Apaches. And then my other brother was an wow. armor officer. So tanks pre 9-11. Um, but he did a lot of work with the military after 9-11. He ran a company that specialized in um Russian helicopters and Russian ammunition sales mm. over to the Afghan government. So we're just, we've always been involved in the military somehow. So as a kid, I just knew that was the direction I was going. And I grew up, my old man, after he got out of uh, Vietnam, he went into the State Department. So not CIA, straight up state for a career. So we moved all over the world. Uh, so I was born in Belgium, grew oh, wow. up in Southern Africa and Zimbabwe, in Pakistan. And, and then we went, settled down for my high school, which was in Florida for my dad's last assignment as a political advisor to the commander in chief for uh, CENTCOM, Central Command. So we just, we were always around these like small, but very tight knit American communities. So we grew up like really patriotic. Um, we'd occasionally go back to the U.S. for vacations every other summer, but I only got like a little taste of America. So everything else was like through movies and shows that I might have the chance to see. Um, so we really grew up with this military mindset and expectation. Yeah, I, I would assume that has to be an interesting background because, you know, with my background, I grew up in the same town from the time I you know, was born, lived there pretty much all of my life. I'm currently in Connecticut, but other than that, I've, I've lived a year in Philadelphia, but I've because beyond that, I always lived on Long Island, New York, and either Manhattan or Port Washington. So I I go back with a lot of these kids that I grew up with from when I was like six or seven, and I still see them. So I assume for you, there there has to be some feeling of like no place felt completely like home. Yeah, even today, I don't really like we're out in California near Silicon Valley, where my my new profession is, and there's like my I guess my home is Florida, but. I didn't go to elementary school there, middle school. I do have good friends from high school still there. But even for college, I left and went to D.C. So constantly moving. I think you put you spot on with that. Like we just have no real roots 
to speak of. But I will say because of that, America kind of became this like beacon for me when I was overseas and what I was really drawn towards. So it might not be city or state specific, but the country itself meant a lot to me. I would also assume it prepared you for deployments in a way that your fellow soldiers had not been prepared for. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I truly grew up in the third world in these embassy communities. Like That was not new to me. Um, so deploying to Afghanistan, I mean, certainly like being on a FOB, that's something you don't do as a kid. But like I had lived for four years in the neighboring country in Pakistan. So I was pretty well versed in in the culture, the dynamics, the geopolitical dynamics there. And then when I was at the agency, same thing, like very easy to move around in the diplomatic community. Like that's where I, I grew up and watched my dad and mom at dinner parties, and dignitaries and other diplomats in these different countries. So yeah, it made it a lot easier, I think. So uh, let's get into becoming an Apache pilot. How did that all come about? Was was that in any way the dream of what you were going to do in the army or was it just what what you felt you'd be best at and then what the army felt you'd be best at? I definitely chose that path, but it was a tough choice for me. Um, again, I, I mentioned my, my dad had a great couple years of flying. And when he was in Vietnam, he has a distinguished flying cross and a silver star, which are super hard to come by. Um, yeah. So I kind of grew up with these aviation stories in mind. Um, but then I had my other brother who was an armor officer. So he had seen the tank side of things, but he did a lot of light infantry work. So I'd seen that as well. I thought the Ranger stuff was pretty cool. And I, I don't know if there's anyone out there who's seen Top Gun more than me. So I like, grew up <laughs> loving that. And the new movie was awesome as well. It was. Um, so I was really drawn to this, some type of aviation, but there was always a part of me that really wanted to do kind of the special forces, special ops side of things. And so when it came down to choosing my branch in the army, like there's a point in time when you're in ROTC in college where you have to put in your selection. And I was really high on the order of merit to, to determine where I was going to go. I'd probably get my pick. And so like up until the last minute, it was between aviation and infantry because infantry would have been the, the natural path into special forces. And like I have regrets on that today that I didn't go that infantry special forces route. But 100 percent, if I had gone that route, I'd have horrible regret that I didn't do the aviation thing. So when I came back from Afghanistan, my dad and I were able to talk about like, what's it like to be in the cockpit when you're being shot at and you hear these people on the radio who desperately need you? Um, like there, there's a family connection that I, I wouldn't want to have passed up. Well, I mean, that's a great question that you just asked yourself. I'm sure people are wondering what what is that like? Yeah, no, I mean, there's I'd say there's almost nothing like it. I mean, maybe when you're when I was at the agency, like going out to meet an asset and being out on your own, you get the, a similar feeling to that sense of responsibility. But when you're up in the aircraft flying around and an Apache, which is like the whole mission there is, is shooting something like it's just you and your co-pilot. And usually if you're doing your job, it means somebody else is in real trouble. Like sometimes we, we would often do convoy security, nothing happened, some reconnaissance, but when things are really going on and we're on a quick reaction force or we're doing a deliberate operation and we're shooting, like you just really have to be teed up and at the top of your game. And actually there was a, a scene in Top Gun 2 that I thought was pretty interesting for those who have seen it, obviously not similar to an Apache, but 
towards the end, they're in a dog fight and there's just a lot going on and the radios are blowing up and it's any vet who's been out there downrange knows exactly what that feels like. You got assets up above pilots like me screaming. Um, you're trying to coordinate guys on the ground. You got JTACs calling. You probably got to keep headquarters updated and tell them to shut up, but there's just so much going on at that time. So like just trying to be, it, there's probably nothing else in life where you're so immersed in a moment and have to be really dialed into what's going on. So it's, it's really exciting those moments, but obviously, you know, people get killed and hurt. And so it's tough, but a lot of the vets I've interviewed now, and I'm sure you guys hear it on battle line, like you miss it because you're just, you're so immersed in the moment and like giving everything you have for someone else. It's pretty cool. So it sounds to me like, and and we'll get into your actual stories, but that that's a pretty high endorsement that the authenticity of Top Gun, and it sounds like both Top Guns w- was there coming from someone who lived not exactly the, the Top Gun Navy lifestyle, but lived the lifestyle of being a pilot in the military. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the alpha characters in that, like you have those in aviation and they they go to certain aircraft and so you've got that competitive spirit. And I, it was really funny when I was watching Top Gun 2 because a lot of vets talk about missing the military camaraderie that you have. And it just brought back a lot of memories when I was a kid watching Top Gun or some of these other movies and thinking like, man, I just want to be in an environment where people are giving you a hard time, but it's to make you better. It's all coming from a place of love. There's a lot of competition, but like everybody who's there has signed up to you know, like to give whatever they have to help someone else. And it made me think back again, like, yep, that's what I was going for as a kid. And that's what I really appreciated and totally miss now from the military. And the agency's really good about that too. That's amazing, man. So the the deployments to Afghanistan, what, what stands out to you? Are there any uh, stories of a challenge you had that stood out to you or just any combat stories in general that that defined who you are as a person today? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think like a lot of people, you know, went to combat as one person came back as a different person. So certainly different challenges. And and to be clear, I, I was there for one year, which I don't want to say like, oh, I was only there for one year. But when you're talking to folks like like Chris, for instance, Tonto, who's been like downrange for years at a time, sure. you know, I've been there for one year. Um, so I don't want to put that up against people who have done multiple deployments. But yeah, uh, certainly tough and and probably like a, because of when the fighting season is in Afghanistan, like the warmer times, probably like a six to seven month, really intense period of various engagements. And there are several that come to mind for me. Um, and at that point in time, I had been a pilot for about seven years, six years. And so I was a company commander responsible for 40 people. We had eight to 10 helicopters to patrol a pretty large area. Like the focus in 2008, when I was there, was in Iraq with the surge. Um, so a lot of the assets went there. So we were trying to cover a really broad part of Afghanistan and support a lot of guys on the ground with not a whole lot of assets. So we were sp- spread thin, which means we got a lot of we got to see a lot of action as a result. Um, a few that come to mind, we were on, and, and actually I know you know we were chatting before. You know Jack Murphy, obviously. Yeah. I worked and, uh, with Jack for so many years. So yeah, a great guy. Uh, as you know, like I've interviewed him and, and Dave love them and, and their shared team guys, house yeah. and they've had me on as well. 
um, Jack and I, when we were talking, I told him I was based at Salerno and coast in Afghanistan. And he's like, were you there when the base got attacked? And so I was, and oh, wow. there were multiple times it was attacked, but one of the times was when I was there and I just happened to be on our quick reaction that night. So if anything happened in our whole AO, like even three hours away, that was on us to run out, get in our aircraft and fly out and do something. And that night we were on a night cycle. So, you know, you wake up really late in the afternoon, might work out for a little bit and we go out and we pre-flight our aircraft. So we make sure everything's set. We do a handover from the previous team. If there's anything going on, nothing's happening. So we, because we're pilots, we like to eat. We go down to uh, the chow hall and we're sitting there and we get this call. Like we're, we're eating midnight chow, they called it. So it's like eggs and meat and stuff in our faces. And then they call us, hey, the base is getting attacked. Uh, we need you guys to, to launch. And the chow hall was not near the airfield. So you got like these four, not in the greatest shape, pilots trying to run out to the aircraft. There's stuff like going off outside the wire. You're starting to hear explosions and, and small arms fire. We don't know what's going on. All we heard over our radio was, hey, base is under attack, which is pretty rare. We were a fairly, we weren't a huge base, but we were big. So for somebody to come and, and hit us was not a frequent occurrence. So we were running out. We're heading out to the aircraft and we got our crew chiefs who are helping to launch us basically. And in an Apache, unlike Blackhawk or a Chinook, uh, the crew chiefs don't go with us. They're just hooking up. We're, we're talking to them on the radio as we're getting cranked and they're making sure everything looks good so we can take off. And as we're getting into the cockpit with our crew chiefs, we got small arms fire, like coming in over the wire. You can start seeing uh, tracers, uh, some explosions going off and we kind of, as pilots, tuck into our kind of nice little safe cockpit area. And our crew chiefs are out on the wing, like checking stuff for us and making sure we're ready to launch, like really exposed. So it was one of the few times that I got to sit there and like see them put their themselves out on the line for me. Because usually we would take off and we'd fly an hour and we'd get in a fight and come back. And this time, like they were really, you know, it made a big difference to me, like, they, they put themselves out there for me that night. So we get in, we crank, we take off. And usually we're flying out for some time. And here, like we took off into just a very chaotic environment. So Bob Salerno, for anybody who's been downrange, they'll know like, oh, in coast, there's this base Salerno. And then not too far away was this base Chapman, which unfortunately a year after I left, Chapman was hit with a really nasty suicide bomber that's featured in um, Zero Dark 30. It was a CIA NX base that got hit. And so you had a lot of the, the OGA folks, other government agencies, special ops at that base. So when they heard we were getting hit, they're like, oh yeah, that's in our backyard. So they're rolling out of their base. The artillery battalion that was our perimeter defense is also like, okay, we're gonna go get in this. So we got all these friendlies converging outside at night and there isn't anything like drawn up like we're doing a deliberate operation where we knew all right we're going at this house here's what the bad guys will look like it was just really chaotic all kinds of um comms going off so it's two apaches we take off and and we literally we're just looking straight down at our base trying to orient on where the fight is you can't really talk to anybody the friendlies coming in from chapman 
We don't know their comms because we never work with them. They're all spooky special ops people. Um, so we see them coming. We can't really tell them from the other friendlies or enemy. So we're just trying to assess the situation. And within an Apache, it's, I mean, outside of the special ops community for aviation, it's the most technically advanced aircraft. So what we would do between the two aircraft to make sure we don't run into each other is we would drop this icon on our computer screens. So like my wingman would drop it on top of the area we're working on, on his, his dash, and then text it over to me. So we had the same overlay and it was basically a box that had, that was cut in half. And so we'd say, all right, you guys, you aircraft stay on that side of the box and the other aircraft will stay on the other. So we don't run into each other. So we're doing that and we're kind of doing racetrack patterns separately, not like a trail wingman scenario. And we're just trying to orient on what's going on on the ground. And in this particular event, I was sitting in the backseat of the Apache. I would usually sit in the front as the commanding officer to run the battle. The guy in the back is typically the one who's flying and the guy in front is shooting and um, kind of making sure that what's going on on the ground makes sense and that we're helping how we need to be helping. So this time to get me some time in the backseat, we switched, which is not a good thing to do in combat. I was not as familiar with the backseat. So I'm trying to orient and not, not run into my wingman. And all of a sudden my front seater, who's the most experienced pilot in our unit is like, all right, I got to got some enemy here. We're clear to take a shot, make sure I'm clear. So I said, okay, sounds good. I get into an attack pattern. We come in to shoot and I'm like, all right, you're clear because it's my responsibility to clear him. And then all of a sudden our wingman flies like right in front of us on the screen, not like 10 meters in front of us, but between us and the target. And so on the screen that my front seater is using to look at his, at his target, he's yeah. basically got another Apache that flies in front. Wow. So to, to me, that was a a huge like wake up moment of guy. Yeah, I cannot be behind this aircraft. Like I got to get ahead of the fight. So what I did is I, I pulled up, we aborted that shot, we pulled up and started climbing to get back into a position. And I was like, I just need a couple, couple seconds to my front seater. And he was really experienced. He's like, all right, no problem. And then, all right, let's get back in this fight. And so we did, we got back in, um, we ended up not taking many shots that night because it was so chaotic on the ground, but we were able to push these guys back. The fight went out, like we flew for probably four or five hours that night. And then we handed over to a day crew of Kiowas to take over, like this fight went on. They hit us with um, a pretty serious vehicle-borne IED. Um, so took out a lot of the perimeter, some of the perimeter guards, the Afghans. Um, they did not actually breach our base, which is great. Uh, but it was, it was intense. Like I just hadn't really been involved in something that was that, um, you know, so chaotic like that. Um, we, we got into some others later, but nothing like in my backyard like this. So it gave me a great appreciation for what these guys and these isolated fobs were going through when they got hit. And it was just a reminder, I got to be on my game at all times when I'm up here, like, I can't just say we're clear if I haven't really looked hard enough to clear it. And then it was great because the, the guy in the front seat could have really wrecked me. I mean, I was a senior ranking officer, but he had been flying for 20 years and he, he got, he's like, Hey, just calm down. We'll get back in this. And we did. And he helped me. So 
great learning experience, but yeah. not the kind that uh, I really wanted to be a part of like that. But we ended up helping the base. That felt good. And I got to see my guys really, the, the crew chiefs got into it for, for one of the first times, which I thought was awesome. Well, when you said uh, earlier, when, when I asked you, you know, these experiences that change you as a person, how, how did that change you as a person saying that, that, that you were no longer the same person you were before deployment from that experience? Yeah. I mean, like that was truly near death. If we had hit our wingman. We, all of us would have been dead. I would have taken three other people's lives with me. Um, it wasn't the first time I had, I had had, I guess, like thought about a near death experience, but it was probably the first time I was that close to one, like really that close to it. And, and that would have been a catastrophe, not just for us who lost our lives, but like having to the PR for the Taliban would have been great on that one. Like that's what they want to see aircraft yeah. go down the whole dynamic of the battle changes. So I think it made me remember, Hey, I, I might be I feel young at 28, but this is the real deal here. And actually when I was in um, my first assignment in Germany years before that, 2005, 2006, we were on a training exercise and two, two pilots that I knew just flew straight into the ground on a training exercise. And like, these are people we knew from our unit. And so that was like the first time that it was real to me. You could really get killed doing this. These were experienced pilots on a training run at night and got fixated on a target and just flew straight into the ground and couldn't pull up. And then you sit there in the aviation community, you listen to, um, the tapes of the people, like the black box recorders of what happened in their last moments. And like, you're listening to the last minute of their lives with all the other pilots to learn from it. But it's hard to divorce yourself from like the emotions of these guys and their families, their kids, their wives, super hard. So like, so I guess I say that that night when we got that base attack, it wasn't like the first time I'd had to confront like mentally the possibility we would die because it really started with that moment in Germany, but it kept building towards changing me and my mindset and not taking things for granted, um, writing back home a little more often, that sort of thing. Who, who was the first person you got to call to recall that near, near death experience to like your, your parents, uh, you know? Yeah, great question. So I was married and had a six-month-old son at the oh, time. Oh, wow. So that was wow. tough. Um, that night, I don't remember. But the night that um, a separate fight that I was in a couple months later in October of that year, that probably the, the worst experience I had, we were covering a ground convoy out of a valley. And it was daytime, but we knew it was going to be bad. So we had like our best crews on it. Chinooks had ex- air exfilled part of this ground unit and we were just guiding like some trucks out and they got hit in a nasty ambush way the farthest point away from our home base. So like refueling in route just to get there, not a lot of time on station while we're there going Winchester, like running out of, out of bullets and that sort of thing and having to cycle back. They got hit really hard. And there was a moment there where I was, um, flying with a different co-pilot this time. But the same guy who was in my front seat that night, we got attacked. He was in the our sister ship. So he and I were still out there together. And there was a point in time where we just couldn't get a shot off on the enemy because they were too close to the friendlies. And our friendlies were taking a lot of heat and they needed to get to an, uh, 
a medevac point because one of their guys got hit with an RPG. And he said to us, he's like, hey, guys, you don't have to do this, but we need to, uh, I think we need to drop down and draw fire away from these guys in the ground. Like they need to be shooting at us instead of the ground forces. Like nobody has to go, but are you okay with it? And we were all like, absolutely. And it's funny because I talked to Tonto about this from uh, 13 hours. There's a moment with like the group of guys when they're said, they're telling them, hey, you can't get out of here. And the guy's like, none of you guys have to go, but if you want to go, they need us. And he says, like, he really remembers that. And I remember that too. Like, it felt very similar when Chris was describing that event. Um, so we, we went down, dropped down low, like 50 feet off the ground, flying over their heads. We took small arms underneath the aircraft. And then we saw this RPG pass, like just past our window. And at that moment, I like heard my six month old babbling to me, everything slowed down the way people describe. Um, and then when we limped back to base later that day, we had bullet holes in the aircraft. We had a, a round that went into our fuel cell, but didn't detonate. It, it was trapped in the fuel cell the way it's designed to be. Um, some of the, the rounds were pulled out and given to me like, hey, here's a little trinket from uh, a little something from the time you nearly died. So when I landed on that one, that one, I was like, I am a changed person right now. Like, I'm so excited to get back from this. But I hugged it out with my front seater um, or my back seater at that time. I was in the front seat. And we both knew, like, we had just come back from something very significant. And with that one, I went back. And actually, the first person that I sent a note to was I sent an email to this guy that I went to high school with. He was the best man at my wedding. Um, again, like, me not having roots that my high school was kind of the last place I really had friends that I can recall. And I sent a note to him. I was like, Hey man, I need you to make sure my son Owen like grows up in case I don't come back. And that was super hard for me to write. And it was probably, I probably still had three months left in my tour. And like, we were just getting a lot of action going on at that point in time. And so that was like, before I sent it to my wife and I was like, don't tell my wife about what was going on. Like, I don't want her to worry. Sure as hell didn't tell my parents, but yeah, that was, uh, I still remember writing that email and a, a few years back, I looked it up just to see like, did I really write that or did I imagine it? Yep, for sure did. That's the thing I sent. We hope you guys are enjoying this episode with Ryan Fugit. We have some great sponsors who keep us going. And the longest time sponsor of this show is Fort Scott Munitions. Fort Scott is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC-spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. You just got to go to fortscottmunitions.com. Link is in the description. F-O-R-T-S-C-O-T-T-M-U-N-I-T-I-O-N-S.com. Fortscottmunitions.com. And if you click on the dealer locator and type in your zip code, you're going to find a dealer right by you. And for their merch, for anything on the site, actually for Photonis, which we're going to get into, they have a discount code for that as well. 
Um, but for t-shirts, hats, any of that stuff, you're gonna get 15% off when you use the promo code BATTLELINE at checkout at FortScottMunitions.com. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. Now, another sponsor we work with, as I said, that you can find their stuff on the Fort Scott Munitions website is Photonis Defense. And Photonis is actually finally on Instagram. You're going to find them. And you know what? I'm pulling out my phone just to make sure because I wasn't planning on this to see if it's, I think it's at Photonis Defense. I just want to make sure of that. Uh, Yeah, at Photonis Defense on Instagram. So add them, P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S, Defense on Instagram. Photonis Defense is the global leader in night vision solutions, providing more high-quality night vision capabilities than anyone. Hunters, shooters, boaters, and outdoor enthusiasts rely on Photonis Defense systems to make their adventures safer and more successful. Military, law enforcement, and public safety end users utilize Photonis Defense Solutions to give them the edge at night in tactical situations and rescue operations. Photonis Defense is now offering state-of-the-art night vision systems from the PD-Pro-B 16mm binocular and the PD-Pro-M 16mm monocular to the PD-Pro-Q panoramic night vision system. Customers from all over are excited about these new, smaller, lighter NBGs. And I've got to say, the people checking them out and are really loving them include operators of all branches. We've interviewed Navy SEALs on this program, like Justin Sheehan, who stand behind Photonist Defense. So they're the best out there. You've got to see these things to really experience how much smaller and lighter they are than anything you've used previously. Visit PhotonistDefense.com. Go there now, P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S, defense.com. Link is in the description if you're driving around or something and you want to visit later, photonistdefense.com. For more information or, of course, look for Photonist Defense product options from your night vision dealer or go to fortscottmunitions.com and you can check out Photonist Defense there. With that, we're going to get right back into the interview with Ryan Fugit. That's amazing. Well, uh, getting into, you know, where your career went from there, the thing that I noticed is there's a little two-year gap in between your Army service and going into the CIA. So what was going on between 2009 and 2011? So I think like so many vets, probably like a lot of people, but really vets, when you leave the service, it can be a tough transition. And I left in 2009. So the op tempo for the Army, just the military in general, was so high. So I left, I transitioned command. So I've been responsible for all these people during this deployment, transitioned it. And like within a year, that same unit was back in Afghanistan fighting again. And I just felt terrible, mm-hmm. felt so bad that I was sitting in like having barbecues and playing golf. And I just hated every second of it. So I was, were, doing, were you working a regular job or what? Yep, I was doing? working a regular job. So like I had, great undergraduate degree. I had an MBA at that time. I was working, um, I did consulting at Booz Allen and I just didn't enjoy the work. And it was no like zero issue today with the work and people who do it, they're doing good work. But for me, it just felt like empty. And I felt almost like I was a coward for not doing more. And I really, like, I enjoyed the army when we were deployed like a lot of people, the garrison life of the army is not a fun place to be, at least when you're on the conventional side. So I didn't miss leaving that behind, but I missed the deployment and that experience. 
but I didn't miss the big part of the army. So I was just hell bent. Like it probably took me three or four months from getting out where I was like, I have to do something else. This cannot be what I do for the rest of my life. And so I had grown up overseas around these embassy communities. And my dad, although he was state department, had a whole lot of friends that were CIA. Um, some that I knew about then, but then others that I would know later. And I just always thought it was such an interesting life, the, the overseas, being around the embassies, these foreign capitals, meeting people from other countries. Um, I had studied international relations. And so I put a packet in to go to the agency. And it's a super long process to get in, as Chris has described, the background checks and um, security clearances, even though I had, I still had a security clearance from the army, it still takes time. So that gap, the most, the majority of it was me just transitioning back into the pipeline and then getting through and, and started with the CIA. But I will say when I felt like I'm not in the right place, I did everything humanly possible to just immerse myself in international relations and the mission. So like I went back to grad school with my GI bill back in DC, um, got a master's in security studies. I started consulting um, on these contracts for the army, whatever I could do to just get closer to the sphere of the mission I was doing. Um, and and the, all of that probably helped your resume to then join the CIA. Yeah, it probably does. It's just a little more diversity there. They know I've got the army background and then that, that does not hurt. I would say certainly the education that goes towards that as well. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are interested in in what it takes to join the CIA. It's something a lot of people have thought about before. There's probably people listening who are interested in going down that same path that you went down. So I think people would love to know how it all got started and uh, and what you needed to do to prepare yourself. Well, no surprise. It's a really competitive. Um, <laughs> it's competitive, but it's also a black box, right? Like you don't know what's going on from the start. It's it's very secretive from the beginning and rightfully so like uh, on a level I had never seen in the army, but I also wasn't on like a tier one unit in the army, but it was very security conscious as you can imagine. And it takes a long time to get in. Like they want to make sure they're bringing in the right people. So they do a lot of the screening on the front end where the army bring in a lot of people and then they're screened along the way for different roles. The CIA, like once you're in, they've done a lot of vetting and they don't want to lose you because they spent a lot of money to get you in. But it is a long process with your typical interviews. But, you know, if that's a, if, if you enjoy like puzzles, ambiguity, time sensitive decisions, like it's a lot of, hey, here's the situation you're in. How are you going to react? And there's no like there are rarely right answers, but they want to see how you act on your feet. Um, so for people who really love that stuff, it's a cool interview process, but there are times where you feel like you got mind games, you don't know what's going on. There's nobody you can call for sure. There's no website you check in on, you know, it's all very secretive. And, uh, and for people wondering, what did you do in the CIA? What was your career there? Yeah. So it's funny because a lot of people do reach out to me about this and they're like, I don't know if you could say much about it. And there are certain things obviously we can't talk about. Of course. The, the jobs themselves and the job that I did, and I'll explain it here, they're all on the website, which is good. So the agency, I'm just simplifying things here greatly. There's a 
Directorate of Operations and Analysis. Now there's also science and technology and support and these other big efforts that are super important. But the things that a lot of people think about when they think of the agency are like analysts at headquarters, briefing the president, briefing national security um, advisors, that sort of thing. So there's analysts who do most of their careers in DC and they're doing finished Intel. And then the operation side, which is the side that I was on, are the people that you see in the movies who are meeting people in different countries, recruiting foreign assets, meeting with assets to, to get Intel. So I was on that side. So I went to the training to do all of that type of work. And the main kind of like the um, in the army, like the backbone of the army is the infantry, right? Like you're not doing anything without them. The same thing is true at the agency for operations officers. So a case officer or an ops officer, those are kind of like your infantry. They're the ones going out and doing the hard work, meeting assets in crazy places and collect, like truly collecting the intel. So I was not one of them. I was trained to do what they did and I would do what they do, but my job was different. So I was a collection management officer. So we were CMOs. And the best way to describe it is like an editor at a newspaper. Hmm. So if you think of something like the Wall Street Journal, and this is an oversimplification, but at something like the Wall Street Journal, you've got journalists who are out there collecting the stories, writing them up, and that is what our case officers were. And then on the other side, you've got like the people who pay money for the Wall Street Journal who want to know what's going on. They expect good stories that are well-written and provide insight you know, through your customers. So the editor kind of sits between those two worlds of the journalist getting like the best story possible, but also knowing what the consumers really want so that they can have the journalist go collect that story. So that was my job in the Intel community. So it was to understand the consumers in our case were like the White House, National Security Council, Department of you name it, the military, whoever needed Intel, the analysts who needed raw Intel to make finished products or to make decisions. So I had to know what they wanted for a particular topic. Like if we're talking about violent extremism in a certain country, like maybe that was my topic to understand. I'd have to know who's going to read the reporting and hear like, what are your intelligence gaps? What's, what's something that's keeping you up at night? What information do you need? And then I also had to know who are the case officers who have access to people or things with this information? So I would go talk to them and say, all right, look, you're going out on this operation in a week. If you only have time to ask two questions, you have to ask these two questions. Like this is what they really want to hear. So make sure you get that. And then if they have more time, that's just gravy. But if not, they make sure they come back with that info and then they'd write it up. I'd edit it. Like, here's what it needs to look like. Why did you say this? Let's get your analysis out. What's just the facts of what's being said. And then we publish it for lack of a better term to the consumers who are going to read it and make decisions based on it. And it's the cycle that repeats. And so we sat in the middle of it, but they wanted us to know what it was like to be the journalist. So we got trained to do it. We were expected to do it, but we spent most of our time doing that editor type work. That's awesome. Hey, you know what I'm, I'm wondering a little off topic here, but we are talking CIA. What's the story behind the uh, backdrop there with the wood CIA piece? Did that, did someone just get that made for you? Or is that something from, you know, the CIA? Or? No. So that, that is something that I had made um, cool. just on probably on Etsy or something. And it was a gift cool, for my though. life. No, it, it's awesome. But I will say 
CIA at headquarters has an awesome uh, gift shop. And so I do have a bunch of these cups. I'm always drinking out of these on my show. Um, but this, this, and there's some other ones that we have at the house. My last day there, I went into that shop to buy a whole bunch of stuff. Nice. Um, because most of my time at the agency, I was undercover. Couldn't tell people I worked there until the very end. So I couldn't have any of that stuff at my house. And once my, you know, I was leaving, it was okay for me to do that. So I stocked up on a few things on my way out. That's pretty cool. I have to say. Um, yeah. So, you know what I wanted to ask you about too is, uh, you know, obviously you're here to promote the podcast. We'll get into the podcast um, and not necessarily what you do for your day job. But I think the interesting thing to talk about with what you're doing is just the fact that so many guys that I've interviewed over the years uh, talk about the transition from military life to civilian life. And, and in a lot of cases, a lot of the guys I interview are public figures. They've put out books, they do podcasts, and uh, a lot of them, like Chris Peranto, of course, are public speakers. That's not really the path that most guys are going to take, and and some people do struggle to find a, a really major career like you're doing now with a Fortune 500 company or comp- publicly traded company. So what advice would you give to guys, and, and also just your story of how you got to doing what you do today? Yeah, that's a great a great set of questions and something that I know Chris talks to folks a lot about this, like finding your mission and purpose after leaving the, the military or government, like the Intel community is the same. It's hard to find that meaning again. So, but I, and I will say, if I could just jump in there, yeah. the interesting thing though is with Chris, I mean, his main job is public speaking, which the average guy coming out of the military, it's just not feasible for yeah. them. You know, and he's a firearms instructor, which is one of those things that is transferable from military service to civilian life. True. You're kind of in a job where a, a lot of guys who there's a, I think there's a lot of guys and women coming out who they don't want to be a public figure. They don't want to put out a book. They, some of them not. don't want to. Some of the most well-adjusted people I know in my life are not on social media. They don't have a presence on any of this stuff. And they do want to just work in the private sector and start a whole new chapter that has nothing to do with what they did in the military. That's so true. So for me, I'll give you my path, but I stumbled into something that I talk to vets about all the time. So when I knew I was getting out, my last two years at the agency, I went to our Center for Cyber Intelligence. So all I did was cyber work for two years. And I picked up a bunch of certifications from a company called SANS, S-A-N-S, which were super difficult for me. And there was like penetration testing, uh, ethical hacking, Python scripting, just things that I hadn't grown up with. I was always around cyber, but never like steeped in it until the last two years that I was there. And so we were doing like the front end work in the cyber domain for USG. So it was super interesting. But I got these certifications that really helped me as I was leaving because I brought more than just a liberal arts background to whatever I was doing next. So when I left, I was recruited by Google to come in and lead a team that they called Early Threat Detection. And we later kind of evolved it into an intelligence collection entity. So I almost did exactly the same job from the agency. I just did it at a company. But I landed in a field that most vets have never heard of that I tell them about all the time, and it's called trust and safety. And it's just like what we used to do in service. So it's it's these huge social media platforms that are trying to defend against terrorists using their platform, nation states using their platform, child predators, misinformation, information operations, 
hate speech, all of that. So the same skill sets that we learned in government, like link analysis, connect, like exposing networks of bad actors, getting somebody on the X, but this time, like we need to figure out who's, who someone is so that we can push them off of a platform. This is in high demand in the industry in Silicon Valley. And what I realized as I was at Google, I would have one or two calls a week with vets who I'd never met, who wanted to know like what to go do next, because it's hard to find meaning when you're doing sales on something like, or, or just consulting. But this, like you're fighting the same Al Qaeda, the Taliban, Russia, China, like nation state threat actors, just at a big company at a much larger scale. So I created a website that's called trustsafetyinstitute.com, and it has trainings for people to understand what the industry's like. It's got a newsletter that gives jobs, like shows what jobs are coming out every day, like topics that are top of mind for people in the industry. And it's really just a way to expose vets and former government law enforcement to this opportunity. There's probably 10,000 jobs there all over the world wow. that, that pay like Google salaries. So it's, it's a huge opportunity, but none of the vets I talked to have ever heard of it. So I just wanted to give them a little like, hey, if you want to get into this, here's what it is. Like I'd encourage people to go check it out. And it's the lessons that I have on there are free for people who are transitioning out of the military, government or law enforcement. So I, I'd encourage people to take a look. But to your to answer your question, Ian, it's really like landing in something like that was so lucky for me. I, I didn't even know that it existed. And what's the website again? And you're still involved with it? Yeah. So it's called trustsafetyinstitute.com. I'm, I'm writing it down because I'm going to put that in the uh, description as well. So trustsafetyinstitute.com. Yeah, that sounds like something that a lot of, because I mean, we have a good crossover of veterans and civilians like myself um, who listen. But yeah, there definitely are veterans who are looking to do something that sounds exactly like what you're saying in that wheelhouse. Yeah. And surprisingly, like you guys, I, I just assume when I started the podcast, it would be all veterans listening or military. And it's not. It's a lot of <laughs> civilians who just appreciate the stories, the sacrifice, the bravery, like the, the kick assness of it all, the tontos out there. Well, but I mean, think about it. Want that too. Of course. Think about how much sense it makes. And and also the the best selling books out there by guys like David Goggins and Jocko Willink and, and all these massive successes. And of course, uh, the, you know, American Sniper films like that, the Chris Kyle autobiography, uh, the, the Nick Irving autobiography. And when I worked with uh, Jack Murphy at Soft Rep, it was kind of the height of all that. It was, it was the height uh, of interest yeah. in all that after the Bin Laden raid. And I think that there are a lot of civilians who they have a huge interest in learning about this stuff. So I think that's why you're seeing all these different podcasts pop up and all these books. I mean, at this, this point, I don't know your feeling. I think it may be too saturated, but <laughs> I think there's there's a lot of veterans who want, who want to tell their story and a lot of uh, contractors and, and war fighters in general who have this outlet now to put their story out that Vietnam era guys didn't. And of course, World War II era guys didn't. Yeah, it's so true. And I, it's definitely there. There's a lot of podcasts out there now, but like the same reason we're connecting. If you're a listener, like you just want to hear these things. You don't really care who it's coming from. So as you put stuff out and we put it out, I think it's just that's best for the people out there to hear these stories because it's crazy what these people did. Tonto is one of the few that gets a movie out of it, rightly so. 
But man, I think you can make a movie out of almost any of these people's stories, which is why it's so cool to tell them. Yeah, it is. And I think even though, of course, the new Top Gun is is a fictional story, when you see the success of it right now, there is a hunger, I think, in America for these types of stories. And of course, the success of Lone Survivor, the success of of uh, of uh, American Sniper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people love hearing about these stories. People love reading these books. And then also there's the whole market for the military fiction novels, which Jack Murphy does. And we're actually, this isn't even out yet. Brad Thor's latest book, we'll yeah. Brad Thor on. But I mean, cool. yeah, people, I think, love reading about this stuff, listening to this stuff. And uh, that's why I think it makes sense that we all, uh, and D, who's the producer for the team house, who's now producing the video for us, brought, you know, your show to my attention. And, and it said, you know, the way D talked about it is just, there's all these comedy podcasts that are blowing up because they all go on each other's shows. And I've discovered so many shows that way. And it does make sense that we all go on each other's shows and promote this thing because we, we should expand the brand of what we're doing. And I think the only guy getting rich off of this really is, is Jocko. Jocko, He's the one guy who's got a podcast in this realm that like everybody knows. And I see, I'll go to the gym and I see his supplements, his protein powder. And uh, I think a lot of that demographic is unaware that there are other great military podcasts out there like yours that they've got to check out. No, I appreciate it. I think another guy you're going to see is Mike Sorelli. I don't know if you've interviewed him yet. No, I, I just interviewed him, but he's got, he's a former dev crew guy. I think he worked with Jocko previously, but he's doing a lot of the public speaking. He's got a great company that's helping land veterans, great jobs. But um, he's also got like a men's fitness, I think, podcast. And so he's he's talking to vets, but he's also talking to uh, like high performers. So I think that's another one you're going to see climb here soon as well. That's awesome. So I, I should ask you, how did the podcast come about? At what point did you so- decide that you wanted to do a podcast? And I think the thing that stands out for you, very high production value in terms of just having the slideshows of different pictures up there and, and all that type of thing. It's not one of, uh, you know, we were audio only for a while. You you do put a lot of thought into what you're doing and, and really telling the stories of these guys. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, I was deployed with the agency and my wife and I decided, hey, eventually we're going to get out of this, out of the out of the agency. Um, and so I was sitting there. I didn't have a whole lot to do one day because I was on my own. My family wasn't there. And I was like, what am I going to do when I'm out of here? And I just was writing down on paper what it would be. And I kept coming back to like, if I could just wake up every day and talk to vets, con- like people like Tonto, um, I- I'd love to talk to more agency people, but it's really hard with the secrecy that goes along with it. They- they've got amazing stories. It's like, I-, I would be happy, like absolutely happy if I could do that. And I w- I'm a huge fan of the Tim Ferriss podcast. So I just kind of mimicked what he did. Um, with his, like this long form, I'm not going to edit much of it. I'm just going to put some, some info up front and just let people hear two, two guys or two folks talking. Um, and that's, that's where it came from. But I started when I was at the agency and they allowed me to record, but not um, launch any podcasts. So okay. I had to wait until I was out a year until I could start um, actually producing them. But then you had a whole lot of material ready to go. I had some material at the, at the forefront, which was helpful. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so then uh, two other questions I wanted to ask you that I'm just thinking of off the top of my head, kind of as as we talk about this stuff. Uh, 
we were talking about Jack Murphy before, and I'll tell you something interesting was, uh, I don't know if you remember. So you're talking about like the secretiveness of the CIA and, and how you can't get that type of stuff out there. I was working at Sirius XM for the David Webb show. And we had a guy on that David that, you know, and this guy went on tons of shows. It doesn't just have to do with where I was. He was on Fox News regularly. Uh, and he went by the name of Wayne Simmons. And he said he worked at the CIA. And you're probably familiar with this story, right? I, I'm not on this one. Okay. So this, yeah, there's this guy named Wayne Simmons. And uh, he had a he had a quote on his book from Donald Rumsfeld, like Wayne Simmons has been there and, and done that. And he no. apparently worked his way so far up into being one of the advisors at I believe the war in Iraq, you can look this up, which is as crazy as it gets. Um, Jack told me very early on, he goes, don't book this guy, Wayne Simmons. He was never in the CIA. I'm positive of this. And it was, it wasn't until maybe a year and a half later that it came out that Wayne Simmons was not in the CIA. And I know that he's not the lone person to do this because of the fact that if you go in the media and say you're a Navy SEAL, you're going to get called out by other Navy SEALs, Army Ranger, you know, the whole deal with stolen valor. If someone goes on Fox News, CNN, and they don't do their proper vetting and say they were a former CIA officer, no one from the CIA is going to confirm or deny that this person worked there. So yeah, what do you think about, because like I said, there's a few of them, guys who have been in the forefront, who've written books, who have been in mainstream news and presented themselves as CIA, and it turns out had no involvement. Yeah, definitely get that. And Jack has steered me away from people. He's like, hey, if you're thinking about so-and-so, don't go down that road, which is good. Like, you just never know. And it is such a secretive place. Like, you just don't know anyone there. If if you hadn't been working with them directly by design, um, I guess I haven't come across it that often. But there are often times where I'll meet people in, in work now and be like, oh, yeah, I worked at, at the agency. And I'm like, Really? Who did you, and you try to play this name game, but it's really hard. People move around a lot and there's no, like, you're not going to any internet site to find it. So it's really hard to do. Is there anyone you kind of caught in the act that, that you were able to say this person's background is fictitious? Yeah. Um, And it's, it's funny because the giveaway in that case was them trying to be really secretive. And once you've been in there and you meet somebody who has been in there, you know exactly what you can talk about. It's like an unwritten rule. Whereas people who haven't really done it are like, no, I can't talk about that. Like, yeah, we can. Because it's not that <laughs> once you know, it's not a big deal. Um, so it was pretty easy to figure that one out. And and that's when you all like go work my network and be like, hey, do you know so-and-so? And I'm like, no, that guy wasn't ever here. So you've had you've had to do that. You've had to reach out to your contacts, or just out of curiosity. That was out and- of curiosity. It wasn't like this guy was trying to get a job, or no, yeah, or like go go out in public. But just the the fact that they're like trying to pass themselves off as this, like mm, the crazy thing, I think, good. is the are the guys who are profiting off of it, like the Wayne Simmons of the world, because um, it is one thing to be the guy who who says it to someone and in passing which is obviously stupid and you should not do and it is stolen valor but uh i think to actually write a book and to be in mainstream news because the fact is i think people assume or at least some people do that if you're going to show up on a major news network oh they must have done their vetting and a lot of the times they did not no i i gotta say i had this fear when i started out on this podcast um i interviewed a guy that jack had interviewed and he helped me connect with todd opalski who's a former Oh, yeah. Marine, I know, Todd. I've been trying to get Todd on. Yeah. Marine recon as an officer. Delta guy. He's awesome. Just a great human being. 
Yes. And so I and he, and he, he apparently likes to like run around naked in Costa Rica. Oh, yeah. With his, so, uh, I mean, he's living his, his best Amanda. life. Yeah, yeah. He's living his best life. Um, yeah. I, I wish I was doing that. <laughs> so he was on our show. When we released that episode, it got a lot of traction for us, uh, like right off the bat. But then there were a lot of comments like, this guy's full of shit. He was never there. He's never done Delta. And I was like, oh my God, what if I made this mistake? What if I didn't do my vetting? But I knew from talking to him, I was like, you could just tell when you're speaking to somebody and you know when they're bluffing. Like he knew all the terminology, everything. And then it was great. I talked to my wife. It's like, what are you doing in this case? Should I jump in there on the comments? She's like, just give it one day. And the people who knew him destroyed these trolls. They just dropped into the comments and they were like, I worked with him in, you know, like 2005 in this place. I was in Delta with this guy, or I was in, like, he was my officer, my commanding officer in recon, like in this unit. And so eventually a couple of these trolls were like, they said, I'm sorry that we questioned it. Like we didn't realize, but I was so worried that I had made that mistake. Yeah. And it, and it happens. And I think if you do make that mistake, you just have to, you just have to kind of own up to it because there are people who are very good at perpetrating, yeah. obviously in Todd's case, not, but I, I think for the most part, guys like you would would not get fooled, but I think it's easier for people in the mainstream media because they assume that in these newsrooms, they have people checking all this stuff out and they really don't. And the, the nature of 20, the 24-7 news network is everything is breaking. Everything is to be right now. And it's like, let's get a Navy SEAL on. Yeah. Let's get a CIA officer on. And you got to get this guy on immediately. And the next thing you know, yeah, this guy's background is farcical, you know. And as soon as one person gives them the opening, then it's like, oh, well, they've been yes. on this other show. So, well, that, that was that was the thing with Wayne Simmons. I, I mean, I could say because I booked him on shows. Right. So I've I guess I've made this mistake, but it's because I was told by people, hey, this guy's legit. But especially seeing a book and, and it has literally a quote from Donald Rumsfeld to the extent <laughs> that's, of like, that's a good one. That says something that says like Wayne Simmons knows this because he's been there, done that. You're like, all right, this is all I need. And that kind of explains Fair. it. Yeah, it's it's nuts. Um, and then the the other thing I wanted to ask you as a Afghanistan vet, um, you know, I, I think the the big news right now, of course, is Ukraine and Russia. And, and I was just learning before uh, we recorded this about these two guys who have been captured in Russia. Um, but I think the the biggest piece of foreign policy news outside of that that we've seen with this administration was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And anyone who served there had an opinion of how it all went down. So I just wanted to hear from your perspective of what was your opinion on us withdrawing and then the nature in which we, you know, had the withdrawal. Yeah. And if you can just remind me and to circle back on um, Ukraine, because I just okay, want to touch sure. on that for a bit. But in Afghanistan, I would say I didn't have a huge opinion on it. I think having lived in that region of the world for many years and being there and studying it, um, I felt like at some point it was going to come to an end. You, know, I think we all wished it was a better looking end than that. I certainly wasn't happy to see the way that it went um, and the people that invested so much there over time to see it all just kind of go by the wayside. One of the people I interviewed recently, um, Farida Mohammadi, was part of the female tactical platoons, which were probably only 30 or 40 women who were trained up to go on special ops raids with our SF and like Rangers. 
and like th they were in the fight nightly with with all of our vampire folks and when like those are the people you really think about when we pull out like you're a woman who's been on direct action raids with the enemy and now all of a sudden you've got no support so she kind of tells the story of being evacuated out by american women who trained her um it's those people that i feel really bad for who had, like she described I went to school, like I walked miles to get to school every day, but it was because the Americans were there that I ever went to school. Mm. And then, we, you know, for us to leave and that opportunity to be gone, I do hope, I don't think this is the case, but I do hope that there's going to be some serious resistance put up to that regime um, internally that people say like, this isn't the way we want to live and they change it themselves. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, then in terms of Ukraine, you said you wanted to touch on something with Ukraine. And uh, yeah, we could wrap it up there, I think. Yeah, that's perfect. So I've interviewed three three guys who um, are fighting in Ukraine. One of them, since you brought up the two Americans who are recently, like, as recently identified as having been captured. One of the guys I interviewed was the Brit who had fought in Syria, but was also fighting in Ukraine. Over the past three years, he had deployed to the front lines. He's a Ukrainian Marine, but he's a British citizen. Ukrainian fiance, he's in the military there. He's made his life there. His name's Aiden Aslan. He was captured in Mariupol uh, probably two months ago now, and he's being held by the Russians. And they're using him for like to push the British government for pretty significant prisoner exchange. And he was just sentenced to death last week in uh, Donetsk region. Um, I don't think that will happen. Like, obviously, a parade does not. But th this is a guy who was never in the military, on his own dime, flew to Syria to fight ISIS for years. Amazing. Came out of that and was like, I want to do more, and went to Ukraine to help them with Russia. Um, so he's being treated as a mercenary when he's clearly Ukrainian military. But we had interviewed him a month or so before he deployed. Wow. And as we were wrapping up, he's like, hey, when I come back, you know, you should interview me again. Um, I'll tell you what, what it was like. And now he's sitting in a Russian prison. So something I check every day. And so these two Americans who are over there, I'm thinking about them all the time. Wow, that, that's incredible. So who, who was that uh, person, if, you, if people want to listen to that episode? Aiden Aslin. So it's A-I-D-E-N-A-S-L-I-N. Yeah, I'm um, sure people want to hear that, great guy. especially great to hear guy. the inside story, because I think so many people feel like with what's going on right now that they're just getting one side of things from the mainstream media. There's, of course, the propaganda from the other side. And I think people like to hear directly from those yeah. in the fight. You can just hear. I mean, this is the same kind of person that Jack was and is and like Tonto. The guy just wanted to help people like, hey, ISIS is doing horrible things. I'm not just going to stand by and watch it. And now Russia's doing it. I'm going to go over there and do something. So you can't help but just like this person and think like, God, that guy's got some serious backbone to go over there and do that. And I, I'm sure that he doesn't want to be traded for anybody. Like I hope he gets out obviously, but I, knowing him, he's so selfless. I'm sure he would hate to see anybody harmed just because they wanted to get him out. But I pray to God that he gets out of there. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So People do need to check out War Story. They may want to check out that episode in, and I'm saying Combat Story. Did I say yeah. War Story at another yeah, point? it's all good. It's all good. I don't know. No, why no, 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 you didn't. Story. You didn't. I didn't. Okay. No. Combat Story. Yeah. So if if you're sure I didn't, now now no, I'm no, no, I'm good. Nope, okay. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> so check out that episode of Combat Story, and check out Combat Story in general. You'll probably see the episode with Chris up. 
Um, so yeah, combat story on Instagram, combatstory.com. And uh anything else we should get out there? I mean, this has been a great discussion, I think. And and we'll do another one with Chris. His connection, though, was truly horrendous. It would have screwed up this whole interview. It's always a comms problem, honestly. I, and yeah. you'll know that as well. So I no. wish I wish we could do everything in studio. I really do. Uh, no. but so many guests we have are from all over. Where where are yeah. you right now? I, I'm in Silicon Valley, you know, close to That's the right. ship. So we're so there's uh, no way I could be over there. there. You know, Chris is in Kansas. Right. I'm in Connecticut. It's just it, it's hard to do what we do until you get to that Joe Rogan level and you get a people fly out. Or exactly. I know Mike Ritland is people flying out to Texas to see him. Uh, I mean, I, I do always think in studio is the best, but our our connection has worked fine, luckily. <laughs> yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I had a great time with Tonto on the show. I think people are going to love that one. So thanks for reciprocating here and bringing me on. Oh, absolutely. And like I said, we'll do it again. And uh, yeah, for the listeners, as always, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Support our sponsors. If you haven't subscribed yet to the YouTube, subscribe to the YouTube. Uh, follow us at Battleline Podcast on Instagram, at Battleline Pod on Twitter. And we'll be back on Monday. That's all for this episode of the Battleline Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christontoperanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never, never quit. quit.